normally don't do this, but I'm going to address those who are joining us online. Uh, that's what this little camera here is for. Hopefully it doesn't distract you while you're listening. Uh, but to the members who are at home, uh, just to remind you that we have a members meeting next Sunday the 13th after our morning worship. You can join us via Zoom. I sent out an email to each one of you. Uh, and if um, you don't have, if you didn't get that, please let me know and I'll send you that information and we will go from there. And to those who don't have internet access, we'll make sure that they know about this as well. So that's the brief announcements. And now the sermon. <laughs> Start with a quote. We are living in the midst of a serious emergency. One economic system, they say, seems to have broken down, and another is not quite yet ready to be put in its place. Everywhere are found to be unemployment and distress, almost everywhere there are wars or rumors of wars. In the midst of such distresses, who can be so heartless as to spend his efforts upon doubtful speculations regarding a life beyond the grave? Time enough to deal with that other world when we have set this world in order. Let us deal bravely, so the argument runs, first with the problems that we can see. And then when we have done that, we may have possibly find opportunity afterward to deal with the unseen and intangible things. What year do you think that quote was uttered? Not 2020. <laughs> 1935. It comes from J. Gresham Machen the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, and his talk, The Present Emergency and How to Meet It. Machen responded to one of the constant criticisms of Christianity. It's just not practical. It doesn't deal with real life. Now, Machen acknowledged this point of view and sympathized with it, but he disagreed. Machen cited what was still recent in that point of history, the example of World War I, he was going to test the notion whether practical solutions are enough to address the world's problems. Listen to him again. Little did I think, for example, as I walked through the town of Zynam on the Scheldt River in Belgium on the morning of November 11th, 1918, and saw the dead lying beside the road and went out into the positions across the river so recently occupied by the enemy. And as I gloried in the strange peace of that November morning, when the noise of war that had so long seemed to be an inevitable part of human existence gave place to a strange, eloquent, unbelievable silence. Little did I think, and little did men far wiser than I think, that the peace then vouchsafed to humanity would result after 16 years in a condition like that which faces us today. Little did I think that a war supposed to make the world safe for democracy would be followed by an era in which, in Italy and in Germany, as well as in Russia, democracy and liberty would be openly despised and would be replaced by a tyranny far more crushing and soul-killing, in many respects, than the cruder tyrannies of the past. Little did I think that even in the American civil and religious liberty, which was our dearest possession, and which was won by our fathers at such cost, would be threatened as it is being threatened Machen didn't oppose pursuing practical solutions entirely. He understood that they had their place. But as World War I proved, 
Practical solutions aren't enough to solve the world's problems. The world's problems are deeper than that. To address the world's problems that plague every century since the fall of mankind, you have to address and deal with the human heart. This is how he closes his talk. It is impossible to deal successfully, even with these political and social problems, until we have come to be right with God. No emergency can possibly be so pressing as to permit us to postpone attention to the unseen things. Ezra chapter 7 chronicles a time in Israel's history where God's people could have clamored after mere practical solutions to their problems. They had returned to their homeland after 70 years of exile. They had finished rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And now, now they needed warriors they needed infrastructure, protection, walls, economic development, a strong, charismatic leader. And you know what God did? He sent them a Bible scholar. We believe practical solutions secure the most favorable circumstances. But friends, even if they succeed in doing that, the best circumstances mean nothing if you don't have a heart for God. Jake Gresham Machen grasped that. Ezra grasped that. And we need to grasp that as well. We'll walk through the story of how God sent Ezra to his people in order to reform their hearts in three sections. We'll focus on the major character of each section. So first, we'll focus on Ezra, and second, King Artaxerxes, and finally, God himself. So first, let's begin with Ezra in verses 1 to 10. Uh, Ezra chapter 7 is printed in your bulletin, or you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahidib, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Notice the very first three words in chapter 7. Now after this. These words seem to indicate that the events of chapter 7 occur immediately after the events of chapter 6. Chapter 6, you remember, closed with the temple rebuild project being completed. But actually, when we pay close attention to the historical timestamps in verse 1, namely when the reign of Artaxerxes the king happened, we find that the gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is actually about 60 years. 60 years. A lot can happen in 60 years. 
Some of us here have memories that span longer than 60 years and can testify to that personally. Chapter 6, like other chapters in Ezra before it, it ends on a high note. There is joy, there's completion, there's vigorous worship of the Lord. But would it stay that way? Even the winner of the Mr. Universe competition will turn flabby if he buries himself in the recliner and Rocky Road ice cream for six months, let alone 60 years. Just because Israel had reached the height of devotion at the end of chapter 6, they could still grow spiritually flabby if they were careless. Chapters 9 and 10 will give us more specifics about what happened during this 60-year gap. But chapter 7 shows us that the people needed direction. God knew his people's hearts needed reform, so he raised up Ezra. And in looking at these verses, verses 1 to 10, we can spot at least five qualities of Ezra. Five different qualities. First quality of Ezra from these verses. Ezra was a qualified priest. He was a qualified priest. Chapter 7 begins with Ezra's Ancestry.com findings. <laughs> then the, the, this list of his ancestors confirms that Ezra was, in fact, a bona fide priest. You might remember Ezra chapter 2. It listed a census of the returned exiles. And it mentioned a group of individuals who claimed to be priests, but they couldn't validate that claim. Now, the priestly qualifications did not mean that certain people in Israel were better than other people in Israel just by virtue of their heritage. No. The priestly qualifications were part of the overall message to Israel that they needed to be careful in how they approached God. You see, the priest, especially the high priest, was the one who represented all the people before God's presence in the tabernacle and then in the temple. It was a big deal. So for Ezra to be a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother, the original high priest, it would make him important in the eyes of the people. More than that, though, Ezra's qualifications and his heritage should have reminded the people of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to preserve his people and to continue to raise up leaders for his people. That's the first quality we see of Ezra in these verses. Second quality of Ezra, verses 1 to 10. Ezra was skilled in the law. Verse 6 says that Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given Scribes were scholars and experts of the law, and we see Ezra was no exception. That phrase, skilled in the law, literally means swift or rapid in the law. Now, more than algebra, more than social studies, more than English, the middle school class that has had the longest effect on me is keyboarding. Yes, keyboarding. You know this, when you have to type something, or especially if you have to type a term paper, and you don't know where the letters on the keyboard are, you are going to be there for a while, and you might convince yourself that they just removed the Z from the keyboard when you need it. <laughs> Keyboarding class in sixth grade taught us what fingers punch what letters and forced us to learn it without looking. It took discipline. It took repetition. But by the end of the class, even as a 
10-year-old or 11-year-old sixth grader, I was swift and rapid in the ways of keyboarding. Now, verse 10 will tell us more about how Ezra became skilled in the law. But verse 6 tells us why Ezra would become skilled in the law in the first place. Why even pursue this? Well, observe how verse 6 describes the law. It's the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Moses wrote it. God gave it. Whether Ezra, the Apostle Paul, or Jesus himself, God's people have always recognized that Scripture has human authors, but a divine source. Friends, this book is a gift from God. And we even have what Ezra didn't have. We have the New Testament that contains how Jesus fulfilled the law of the Old Testament. God gave us his word to show us himself, to make us wise into salvation, to teach us, to train us, to correct us, to equip us so that we may live a life pleasing to him. It's been said that if you want to hear from God, read the Bible. It's been said that if you want to hear an audible word from God, read the Bible out loud. Friends, what further motivation do you need to open this book and become skilled in it? Third quality of Ezra from these first few verses of Ezra chapter 7. He was connected to the king. He was connected to the king. Look at how verse 6 continues. And the king granted him all that he asked. Now, not everyone could make requests of the Persian king. You may remember the book of Esther. Even Esther, who was a favorite queen in the Persian empire, knew that she couldn't freely waltz into the king's presence. So Esther must have had a very close position to King Artaxerxes, perhaps an emissary, perhaps some sort of official. But Artaxerxes didn't discover the idea to send Ezra back to Jerusalem on his own. No. Ezra had to open his mouth and ask him. That took boldness. You know, we often approach our family and friends who don't trust in Christ by modeling the Christian life through our conduct, through our care, and through our compassion. These are good and necessary. But no non-Christian will have a door held open for them, for example, and then suddenly discover on their own, oh, I need to repent and believe in Jesus. Oh, friends, if they're to know that, we must open our mouths like Ezra and tell them. Fourth quality of Ezra in these verses. Ezra had the hand of God upon him. You see this phrase repeated throughout chapter 7, and it tells us the secret of Ezra's effectiveness. You can imagine Artaxerxes probably had a massive bureaucracy filled with guys who, who demanded his schedule. And the guys who were hung around uh, Artaxerxes were probably the intellectual and military elites of the entire vast empire. So if Ezra had to measure up to these standards in order to get the king's ear, oh, his requests likely would have fallen flat. After all, why would Jewish priestly ancestry and knowledge of the Jewish law impress the Persian king Artaxerxes? No, Artaxerxes listened to Ezra 
because the hand of God was on Ezra. This tells us if we attempt to achieve our goals in life and in ministry by measuring up to the world's standards of intellectual brilliance or cultural savviness or just overall impressiveness, we try to attempt our goals by measuring up to all those things, we'll just end up on an endless and empty pursuit. Instead, we follow the way of Ezra, and we relentlessly pursue knowing God and his word. We boldly follow God wherever he has placed us, and we trust God to take care of the rest. Fifth quality of Ezra from verses 1 to 10. Ezra studied, lived, and taught the word of God. Verses 7 and 9 tell us about the group that journeyed with Ezra back to Jerusalem. And then verse 10 offers a beautiful epitaph of his life. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Can you see how these are in logical order? You know, Ezra would not want to study the word if he did not have a heart for the word. Ezra could not do the word if he didn't know the word through study. Ezra could not teach the word if he did not know the word and do the word, or else he'd be shallow and a phony. Friends, do you want to know God? Do you want God to use you in the work of his kingdom? Set your heart to study the word, to live it out, and to make it known. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Donald Whitney, he required his students to list all the books of the Bible in order uh, on their final exam. And this requirement stemmed from a PhD candidate in biblical spirituality. Now, when this student defended his dissertation before Dr. Whitney, Dr. Whitney sort of asked him on a whim, hey, what are all the books of the Bible? And this student, who was about to get his doctorate in Biblical spirituality could not name all the books of the Bible. Friends, even books about the Bible can keep us from knowing the Bible itself. You know, I, I think of how I can apply this myself. I put pressure on myself to keep up academically, to be well-read, to be a good writer, to be a, a capable counselor and pastor. But if I do not set my heart to study, live, and teach the word, what's the point of academic credentials and powerful prose? I know God's called us to different jobs, to different responsibilities, and God's created a world full of really cool stuff. So I'm a curious guy as much as anybody else. I just, I want to learn about everything. But don't let distractions stymie your desire, your study, and your application of the word. You know, I bet Ezra had to make time for it too. I bet Ezra, if he was an official or emissary in the Persian court, probably didn't have 24 hours a day to work on studying the Lord. He probably had to set aside time and be disciplined in it. So friends, enjoy football. But don't be the Christian who can name the third string long snapper on the Browns, <laughs> but can't talk about the word in conversation. Don't be the Christian who knows the latest trends on Pinterest and HGTV, 
but whose deepest time in the word is when she looks at a verse stitched on a pillow. Don't be the Christian who can talk about what Hannity or Maddow ranted on last night, but can't cling to what they read in the word this morning. Set your heart to study the word, live the word, and make it known. That was Ezra. These are the people in whom God delights, and these are the people who God uses in his kingdom. And just a, a quick note, if you want practical counsel on how to get started in this. You know, most times preacher will, preachers and other Bible teachers will just commend, you know, a personal quiet time or devotional time where you're in the Word on your own every day. And that's good. We need to develop discipline in that. But even if that is too big of a hurdle for you and that has been a struggle, if you want to set your heart to study the Word, to live it out, and to make it known, friends, why not start here? Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what this community is? A community of Christ followers who study the word, live it out together, and make it known together? Can't you get help from that from a brother or sister here? Can't you help your brothers or sisters who need help and growth in that? Start here. Lean into the sermon. Read the text in advance. Talk about it after noon, after 12 o'clock on Sundays. Join us on Wednesday nights. Take advantage of every opportunity we have together to study the word, to do it, and to make it known. So the man God chose to send back to Jerusalem in order to lead and reform his people was a qualified priest. He was skilled in the law. He was close to the king. He had the hand of God upon him, and he set his heart to study, do, and teach the word. Full disclosure, this is the longest point of the sermon. But there is just one more thing before we move on. And that is, anything good in Ezra is a shadow of Jesus. Anything good in Ezra is a shadow of Jesus. Jesus is, as Luther so famously put it in his hymn, the ultimate man of God's own choosing. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who can represent us before God because he alone is truly God and truly man. Unlike Ezra, Jesus did not need to sacrifice for his own sins. He sacrificed himself. Unlike the bulls and goats sacrificed in Ezra's day, the blood of the sinless Son of God provides full and final payment for sin. But friends, just like the people in Ezra's day needed more than a new set of principles and practical solutions, so us, we need a person. We need a representative. So in love, the Father sent his only begotten Son. Jesus stands in our place to give us his perfect obedience to the word and to take the just punishment for our rebellion against the word. Trust him to stand in your place today and forever and follow him as Lord. Back to the story. How did Ezra get back to Jerusalem? And maybe more specifically, how did God get Ezra back to Jerusalem? Similar to previous returns in this book, God used a foreign king. This time it was King Artaxerxes. He's the main subject of our next section in verses 11 to 26. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to give an overview of these verses, not read them word for word. So to tackle this section 
just going to ask two very simple questions. What did, as, what did Artaxerxes do, and why did Artaxerxes do it? So first, what did Artaxerxes do? Big picture level, we can see he made three sets of decrees. The first set of decrees come in verses 13 to 20. There he permitted Ezra to return to Israel along with any other Israelite in the empire who wanted to join him. And this first set of decrees also included official funds for Ezra's work. Artaxerxes had the same policy as John Hammond, the fictional architect of Jurassic Park. He spared no expense. He literally told Ezra to buy whatever he needed. Blank check. Artaxerxes' second set of decrees comes in verses 15 to 20. In this set, Artaxerxes instructed the treasurers of the region to cooperate with the ongoing funding of the work of the temple in Jerusalem. The third set of Artaxerxes' decrees comes in verses 25 and 26. Here, Artaxerxes deputized Ezra to appoint judges in the region, and he authorized him to enforce the law of God and, law of, and the law of the king. And you look at the big picture of what Artaxerxes did. No amount of practical solutions or practical strategies could have produced outcomes as favorable as these for Israel. And yet, you know how God brought about these outcomes? Through a guy that studied, lived, and made known the word. That's the big picture level of what Artaxerxes did. But his actions grow in significance when we look at the specifics. Even a casual glance at verses 11 to 26 will reveal Artaxerxes' near obsession with the law of the Lord. Verse 12 he points out that Ezra was a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Verse 14, he told Ezra to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. Verse 25, he told Ezra to appoint magistrates and judges according to the wisdom of God so that the people would know the laws of your God. Verse 26, Artaxerxes told Ezra that whoever did not, did not obey the law of your God should be executed, banished, have his goods confiscated, or imprisoned. So time after time, Artaxerxes charged Ezra to measure the state of the return by the yardstick of the Bible. How did Artaxerxes know that the Bible was the right yardstick and measuring tool? Well, how else would he have known? Ezra told him, don't underestimate how God can use your faithfulness to study, live, and make known the word. He can use that to influence the lives of those around you. Now, you might not hang out around kings like Ezra did, but God has given you a circle of influence, whether you know it or not. And through your faithfulness, he can influence those people he's put in their life. So we're asking two simple questions about the second section of chapter 7. First question was, what did Artaxerxes do? Second simple question, why did Artaxerxes do it? You know as well as I do, motives are complicated. But verse 23 gives us insight into Artaxerxes' heart. The Persian kings in the book of Ezra, we've seen them routinely act out of self-interest. 
They appeased the diverse nations of the empire by placating the gods each nation served. So Artaxerxes was no different. Artaxerxes recognized that if he did not allow the Israelites to worship according to the law of their god, then their god would give wrath to Artaxerxes. Now all of us, similarly, if we're honest, share a sense of guilt for failing to do what we know we should do. Those who don't share that sense of guilt have simply suppressed it. Artaxerxes failed to recognize, though, that he could not buy his way to deliverance from God's wrath. Because God cannot be bought. God must be humbly sought. Remember, our main point was that the best circumstances mean nothing if you don't have a heart for God. Artaxerxes needed to know that the best works even the biggest checks mean nothing if you don't have a heart for God. We operate the same way, don't we? Even those who profess to believe in the gospel of grace. We drop a dollar in the Salvation Army bucket outside of Walmart and feel better about ourselves. We participate in charity causes and post our good work for all of our friends to see. We spew and propagate our political views to prove we're on the right side of history. We are on a constant chase to convince ourselves, to convince others, even to convince God that we're good people. Yet we still live selfishly, and our guilt remains. We need to know, along with Artaxerxes, that deliverance from God's righteous and just wrath comes not to those who buy off but to those who trust the Savior revealed in God's word. Romans 5, verses 8 to 9. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Trust Jesus today. Hold on to him. Hold on to him alone. First section of Ezra dealt mainly with Ezra himself. Second section deals with Artaxerxes. And the third, with God. The last two verses of this chapter, verses 27 to 28. They say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. We see Ezra break into the narrative at the end of the chapter with grateful delight. Now, we've admired Ezra's faith and boldness, but Ezra knew the truth. He knew the truth about how he was able to return to Israel, how he was able to bring full funding to the temple, and how he was able to really revive the law of God in Israel itself. God did it. God worked in his sovereignty and love to move King Artaxerxes, to move Ezra, and accomplish his purposes. So friends, are, are you more scared than confident in responding to what faces you? Are you more timid than bold in living out your faith in Christ? Well, you're in good company. 
Even faithful Ezra needed courage. And he found it not by looking inward, but by looking upward. So we say, stamp the truths on your heart that Ezra rehearses in verses 27 to 28. That God rules over all people and events. That God accomplishes what he purposes. That God's love will remain through the circumstances that we dread the most. And that if we belong to him through Christ, God is with you and for you. So more than a plan to boost the economy, to expedite diplomacy or bolster the military, God had a plan to reform and revive his people through the word. So he sent Ezra, the Bible scholar, the priest who studied, lived, and taught the word. God implanted in Ezra a bold faith and used him to bring a foreign tyrant to restore the law of God in Israel. And we can't look at God's plan in Ezra and not have an eye toward God's larger plan in Christ. As Ezra left Babylon and entered the mess of Jerusalem, the rest of this book and Nehemiah after it will, will show us that the law of God that Ezra preached condemned and corrected the people of God. But freedom from the law's condemnation and the power to live out the law would have to wait. It would have to wait until the Son of God left his heavenly throne and entered the mess of the world. In the world, Jesus lived out the law perfectly. It was his food to do the will of the Father. More than that, Jesus took the condemnation we deserve for breaking the law upon himself. Standing in Jesus, we have better than any practical solution. We are made right with God. And we are changed. No longer do we have hearts for self, focusing only on the practical and the earthly. We have hearts for God. And we desire to know him. And we desire to live out his word. Let's do it by his grace. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness toward us. We thank you for your wisdom that knows what we need. Knows what we need better than what we would ask for. And we thank you for the power of your grace that accomplishes what we need. Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you are the true and only representative who gives us your perfect obedience and stands in our place to take the punishment we deserve. Oh Lord, having been saved by you, we want to live for you. We want to know you in your word. We want to be faithful to study it, to do it, and to live it out in wherever you have placed us. And God, we want you to get the glory and we trust you that you will. We pray all this in Jesus' name.